and welcome inside my chewy head. It's a place where I unlock my experiences on an acute psychiatric ward in my attempt to open your mind when it comes to mental health. Because 25% of the adult population is currently suffering from a mental health problem. Because over a million people are currently involved in mental health services. And because, if it can happen to me, what's to stop it happening to you? Hello, welcome back to the Chewy Head podcast. And today we're talking about Maura. Maura, Maura, Maura. Where do I begin with this woman? So... Again, Maura was already in this ward when I arrived and I kind of would see her in the periphery. She was, I'd say, again, I'm really not very good with age, but I would say she was in her 50s potentially. She was always very heavily made up. She had a lot of makeup on and she would always wear uh, like really quite pale, thick foundation. Was That was the thing which really stuck with me and then very red lipstick. And she would always wear this black formal wool coat and it didn't matter you know, whether she was going to be in. It wasn't like she was going anywhere. You know, sometimes sometimes I would put my, when I knew that someone was coming to take me out, maybe in an hour or so, I might sit there in my coat and my shoes ready just so I could leave as soon as possible. But no, she would just wear that all the time. And I didn't know, I didn't really understand that. But anyway, she was a really quite large lady. And I mean that in like physically quite big. Her hair was like purple and quite bushy. And she just had this almost Hagrid-like... I mean, that sounds quite offensive and perhaps it is, but I'm just trying to give you an impression of what she looked like. She was like Hagrid in formal wear, I would say. And she was always moving around. So I'd see her on the periphery, but you couldn't really kind of keep her, if if that makes sense. So she would just be, you'd be like, oh, there's Maura. And then, nope, she'd be gone. And you were like, oh, all right then, maybe, maybe I didn't see her. And so the only times that you really were able to kind of keep her in one place was at mealtimes, which is when I first kind of got speaking to her a little bit. She was quite friendly. There was nothing, you know, she wasn't rude or anything, but she kind of came across as though maybe she had some mild form of autism or something. She didn't really have much time for kind of... She would just ask you... She would say exactly what she was thinking, essentially. But she was she was fairly friendly, so I was I was fine with her. Sarah, on the other hand bloody hated her she hated her guts she was part of the reason Maura now I'm talking about is part of the reason that Sarah basically had to have a bodyguard to protect the public or essentially to protect Maura from being attacked because she hated her that much I don't know why I genuinely don't know why but for some reason she was like suspect number one or something in Sarah's head and so Maura took it quite well, in fairness to her, but I think that was mainly part of the autism thing. Like she, she did know that Sarah didn't like her because I mean, when someone tries to hit you, it's probably quite obvious they don't like you. But I wouldn't say she was overly bothered by it. She just said, "Oh, that girl's very aggressive. She's very aggressive, isn't she?" And I was like, "She is with you. She definitely is with you." So yeah, just an interesting side note there. But she was very much on edge. You could tell that she was dealing with a lot of anxiety all the time because she just would, as I say, move around all the time. She would kind of hover in doorways as if she wasn't sure whether to go in a room or not when she was choosing food. So in the evenings at this place, which we didn't have at the first hospital, they would have this like supper trolley. It was amazing, but also horrendous for my waistline. But anyway, they would have this supper trolley at like nine o'clock in the evening when really do we need do we need to eat 
again, but apparently we did. And so it'd be like toast and sandwiches and cereal, basically. And she would stand next to this trolley for the whole time it was out. It was probably out for like half an hour. And she would just hover there and she'd pick something up and then she'd put it back. And then she'd pick something else up and then she'd put it back. And then she'd pick up like several things and then just like hide them in her coat pocket. And you were like, okay, what's going on here? I don't, I don't never really understood and it was almost like you're watching this mental battle with her like whether she was thinking I shouldn't be eating this or I really don't know I really don't know but I was always found that quite entertaining and just generally she had like quite a, a, a strong I would say she had a strong thing going on with food I don't really know what it was but she was really keen to have as much food as she possibly could but it didn't come across like she was really greedy it was almost like maybe she had a fear of not having food I don't know so at mealtime she would always have everything with all the trimmings and she would always have a huge pudding afterwards and seconds and just as much as she could and I just remember she would eat really really fast and she would use her finger so she would use a fork and her finger even though obviously there were knives available but she just liked to like she would literally like shovel the food with her finger so it was really interesting to watch her eat but also not necessarily the most pleasant thing because you were a bit like why what I don't really understand but you know as I say each to their own. Anyway, we got to talking on one of these occasions and she just kind of asked me, she said, oh, um, are you are you homeless? And I was like, wow, um, never been asked that one before. I mean, I know that my physical appearance has deteriorated somewhat, but this really, this is a wake up call. So I had to say, uh, no, no, I'm not homeless. Oh, I've, I've, I just had a nervous breakdown and now this is how I look. I, there is no real reason why it's just, this is just me now. This is my new my new face, I suppose. But then it transpired that she was homeless. And so actually from that moment on, things made a little bit more sense with her because I thought perhaps that was why she had this fixation around food, why she didn't feel very confident in her environment, potentially why she wore her coat all the time. Maybe she didn't have many clothes. And so I kind of warmed to her slightly then because I thought, oh gosh, that's that's a shit situation to be in, essentially. And so we got to talking and we became friendly-ish. I wouldn't say we were really friends. You didn't really see much of her unless it was at mealtimes. But if she was sat on my table, I would speak to her. That was the level of, of friendship that I was able and willing to offer with her. But yeah, so she told me that essentially she had earlier that year taken an overdose and had gone to a separate hospital on another hospital ward. And she'd been there for, I think she said like five months or something she said it was an awful awful ward where there were lots of very aggressive patients and she felt very intimidated and scared a lot of the time and then she had been released into the community and unfortunately she hadn't had anywhere to go they hadn't managed to find her some sort of accommodation or anything so she was on the streets and she knew she said to me well I had what well, might didn't really have any other options so I thought I'll, I'll just take some more tablets because I need a situation which is going to be sustainable. So it was almost like she did the the second overdose. I mean, I don't know. I'm not her. I can't, I can't really talk on, you know, her mental health. I think anyone who decides to take an overdose of medication is, you know, not in a great place. But I don't know that the motivation was necessarily to kill herself. I don't know whether it was just because she wanted the situation to be resolved for her and felt that that was the best way to do it. So she told me, she said, oh, yes, I, I took 16 paracetamol and then I ended up on this ward. And I was like, oh, OK, that's interesting. So, yeah, I found I found that quite fascinating. And I kind of was always wondering because she came across to me as someone who was quite clever. She was she was quite intelligent. She had like quite a posh accent. Maybe it's just the accent that just, I don't know, glamorised her to me. I don't know. I was just always like, how did you end up on the street? Because she wasn't, perhaps it's really stereotypical to say this, 
So apologies if this is offensive, but, you know, the proportion of people who are homeless who end up on the streets as a result of perhaps addiction is potentially higher than it is in just people who are not homeless. I don't know if that's true, but that was my impression. And she didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't appear to have a drug addiction that I was aware of. I mean, so it was just interesting that she had ended up homeless and I was just kind of intrigued as to her backstory, I suppose. So I would try and engage her in conversations and I managed to discern that she'd never married She'd never had any children. She had had a job before. She'd had a flat and she'd lost her job and then not been able to pay for her flat. And then obviously the depression had set in and she'd obviously been homeless, then had this depression problem. But to me, she was someone who had really high levels of anxiety. And that was to the point where it was almost disabling in terms of her ability to do. I couldn't imagine her in a job now because of how highly strong she was and like if she had an appointment if somebody came on the ward from like I don't know the housing association or her advocate for when she was having her ward round she would be sat somewhere but she'd stand up every five seconds then she'd sit back down she'd check her watch and she would just do it it was almost like nervous tick behavior so I just thought you know any amount of pressure on her whatsoever I don't think she would have coped with so I couldn't really imagine her ever being in a job which was quite sad it was quite a sad case really but also It was really, it just kind of opened my eyes to the complexities that some of the doctors are faced with when they're having patients like this who potentially, compared to some of the other people on the ward who are there for the protection of of their self-preservation, essentially, and for the preservation of of the rest of society. With her, you know, it wasn't necessarily, it was more like she took an overdose as a statement of rebellion, perhaps, or because she was, it was clearly a cry for help, but it wasn't necessarily a like a determined will to kill herself so it was almost like she was in hospital because she didn't have anywhere else to go and if she left hospital she would just try again until they found her somewhere so she was kind of forcing the system to work for her in a way which as I say doesn't mean that she didn't have mental health problems because she clearly did but was she suicidal in the way that she was going to end her life as I say you know, not necessarily and when I compare her to some of the other people who are on the ward and perhaps even myself at the time it was like a different level. So I don't know. It, it was, I found it really interesting and quite confusing. And at the time I was still on the section and I remember really wanting to go out for a walk because, you know, basically the ward was like a cooking pot and it would boil and boil and then it would boil over. And when it boiled over, it was very intense to be there. And you, I just needed a break. And obviously when I was on a very limited section, limiting section, I was desperate for anything. So I would ask to have a walk around the car park and one of the weekend porter people was willing to take me on a walk around the car park. So uh, we got to talking and he was kind of explaining to me that he saw the same people in hospital over and over again. And I was like, oh, right, okay. And he was like, yeah, to be honest with you, I know for a fact that some of these people, they, they're just here because they don't have anywhere else to go. And so it's better for them. They're, they're kind of manipulating the system to work for them. And I was a bit like, oh, is that true? Do we believe that's true? Would, would people choose to be in hospital? But then I guess for me, that's a really alien concept because I'm so fortunate that I have a house and, you know, a partner and... But I suppose for some people in that hospital, when they leave hospital, they literally have very, very limited social interaction with the public or anyone. They don't have like a purpose or a role. They obviously don't have anywhere safe to sleep. They don't have guaranteed food or... So I could see kind of 
why you might be motivated to go to hospital even though for me I was desperate to leave hospital especially when I was on a section and and I literally couldn't get out but yeah it was she definitely got me thinking about that sort of thing I don't know that I'd necessarily agreed with him because I do also believe as a kind of reference from other people that I was in hospital with before that some of the people who end up coming into hospital again and again and again are on a cycle that they can't really break because they have a serious and debilitating mental health disorder that is brought to a state of kind of social acceptability where they still hear voices but maybe the voices are a little bit quieter or they aren't distressing them or causing them to prevent themselves from caring for their physical needs and therefore they're able to go back into society where they don't have that level of support and therefore end up back in hospital and I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a choice I would say that that is just kind of I guess a part of of the cycle of the the way in which mental health is treated in the in the UK but I suppose from his perspective as, as somebody who worked for the hospital and Probably, you know, his job was to be a porter. It wasn't necessarily to care for the patients. And so perhaps he had less empathy for people. And I can imagine that if you are constantly having to deal with the same people, especially if those people are quite abusive or neglectful of their rooms or taking care of things or whatever, you know, then perhaps you might not have the insight. I don't know. It's very difficult to say. But she was fairly cooperative, I would say, though. She she didn't attend any sort of world ward activities. She never she never came to like the occupational therapy area. Even when it was Christmas and we <laughs> we were making Christmas things for a fair or something that we were having on the hospital. She didn't she didn't do anything really. But she would always come for her meds and other than that she would go out because this is the thing. She was allowed eight hours of time off the ward. So if you're allowed by the doctors to walk around for eight hours on your own then the question that comes to mind is do you really need to be in hospital or are you just using it as a place to stay because certainly I wouldn't (laughs) I would not have been allowed in fact I, I wasn't allowed to go out on my own until I think it was literally the week before I was discharged so yeah I, I can't imagine being having having been allowed out for eight hours and also if you're allowed out for eight hours and then you come back to a hospital ward. That must be really limiting and frustrating. But I suppose that was just the situation that she was in. But yeah, she would be out quite a lot. And sometimes I would see her if I was out with, with Ray, who was there to take and accompany patients out and around in the town. See her like in a coffee shop or something. There she'd be in Costa Coffee with her coat on and her huge vat of coffee and white makeup smeared all over the lapel. That would be her. And she'd wave and we'd look at her and wave and... Ray was quite familiar with her and he had patients that he preferred not to go out with. But obviously he had no choice in the matter. And I think that she was one of those patients because I think he just struggled with her nervous tics a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Restaurant.com. With Restaurant.com, you can save at thousands of restaurants across the country, which is America, with just a few clicks. Their dining deals range from $5 to $100, never expire and cost you a fraction of the face value. Dinner has never been easier with Restaurant.com. Use for dine-in, takeout, or delivery. Restaurant.com is offering our listeners 50% off their next purchase by going to www.restaurant.com slash podcast. That's www.restaurant.com restaurant.com slash podcast for 50% off your next purchase restaurant.com the best deal every meal
essentially time went on and I remember it was coming up to Christmas and she was doing her usual thing, kind of dithering, not really being anywhere. I think it was before she was allowed, she, she was allowed out after like nine o'clock or something after the head count or I don't know. She was dithering and waiting for this and I was like, oh, Maura, you know, what are you doing for Christmas? Are you doing anything? And she was like, oh yes, I'm going with my dad and my stepmom and we're going for sun- for Christmas lunch. And I found that really, really interesting because I don't know, I made the assumption that perhaps if you were home, again, this is probably my own naivety and lack of insight into the world and experience of a homeless person. But I just assumed that homelessness occurred for people who who potentially didn't have family connections like that or support systems or people who are willing to take them out for Sunday lunch or Christmas lunch. And so I found it really interesting that she had obviously a, a parent who was there and knew that she was homeless. But, you know, I don't know. I don't have the full information about her her story or anything. But I just found that quite interesting. In the end, she was sent to a halfway house and she was discharged. And unlike a lot of the other patients that I met or the majority of people who I kind of came across in hospital and never saw again, with her, I actually know kind of a little bit more what happened to her post-hospital because I bumped into her in the city centre, in the shopping centre and uh, it was it was a very interesting experience. She was still wearing the same full face of white geisha style makeup, long coat, exactly the same and I was like oh how are you and bear in mind I was I think I was still in hospital at this point so it can't have been really really far into the, her future or the future I suppose. But she was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm still in the halfway house. And I was like, oh, okay. So I don't I don't know long term whether she is working, whether she's able to work. But she certainly was. She seemed cheery, I suppose. So good for her. What did I learn from Maura? Well, I suppose I learned a lot about homelessness and mental health. And it's not really a surprise to me. I don't find it shocking, even though it is devastatingly sad I don't find it shocking that 80% of homeless people are reported to suffer with a mental health condition and a further 27% of those to suffer with uh, an addiction to drugs or alcohol it's not surprising because obviously as we know one of the reasons why people fall into homelessness is through loss of connection with I suppose, working society. And so it's not really surprising given that if you're homeless, it's because obviously events have caused you to become homeless and usually they're quite traumatic events. They could be linked to drugs or alcohol. They could be linked to abuse. I mean, there are multiple reasons why people end up homeless, but generally it's it's not really a choice, is it, generally? And I suppose one of the things which might lead to the greater levels of or chances of being depressed if you're homeless is the fact that you have no tangible knowledge of how your situation will change. So if I reflect on my own experiences of depression and of feeling like I had absolutely no future and being adamant that I had no future, despite people telling me, you know, well, you do, I mean, you're still employed, you have a qualification in teaching, you've got a degree in English, you can go on and do whatever you, you want to do. You can stay in teaching. You can leave. Like Your options really are there. Obviously, I, I have a partner. I have a house, as I've said already this episode. I don't know. I feel like I'm like, oh, I've got a partner and a house. I'm not. I'm just trying to indicate that compared to a lot of people, I had loads of prospects, but I just couldn't see them. Whereas for someone like Maura, she didn't really have any prospects 
at all because she didn't necessarily have anything to fall back on and I think as I say that's kind of the case for a lot of homeless people that it isn't that they have all these opportunities that are waiting for them it's very much that they're fighting to survive and that could be the the state of play for the foreseeable future perhaps even forever and so perhaps it isn't surprising that people who are homeless suffer more acutely than the general population from mental health disorders and perhaps we've become kind of too okay with with this kind of stereotype of someone being homeless and an alcoholic and that just being how it is or having a drug problem and dying of that drug problem in their 40s so the the average life expectancy of someone living on the streets is somewhere in their in their late 40s so I think it's slightly higher for I think women live to be about 48 and men it's actually 45 around there so we're just we just seem to be okay with that as a country because people it go, it goes on and actually homelessness is 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 only increasing and i suppose the reason why we're okay with that is because it isn't us it's not our problem we pay our taxes we do what we should be doing we follow the rules we haven't got ourselves into that situation and so i think there's almost like this accountability thing that we kind of impose on people that we have no idea about why they're really homeless at all but we just assume that it's probably somehow their fault and I suppose in a way that's very similar to linking the idea of having a mental health disorder back to accountability and blame and suggesting that you know if you have depression it's your fault or if you have anorexia it's your fault rather than just your method of coping with the difficulties of life and the chaos of life and I I mean I can only I, I can't imagine being homeless but I can imagine needing something to help me Uh, to deal with the fact that I was homeless and I had no prospect for a future. I I certainly can imagine that I will hold my hands up as someone who has previously been depressed and, you know, probably will go on to have periods of depression in my life. I don't know that I would struggle. And, you know, if you're sat there thinking, well, that would, you know, I wouldn't be on drugs or I, I just don't think that until you've lived somebody else's life you, you you just can't say you know what you would or wouldn't do so whether or not we're doing enough for homeless people um, it's also very clear that in terms of the primary care services uh, and they're being forced I suppose to deal with with people who are homeless and taking them in but it turns out that the rise of people who are being released from hospital and then returning back to hospital within six months and having to be readmitted has gone up 30% since uh, 2014. So a study by the Guardian uh, newspaper found, they got the information from the NHS trusts uh, and they found that the number of discharges for people who had no fixed abode went up to 8,758 from 6,748. And that actually they saw a massive increase in the number of patients subsequently being readmitted following the discharge so 75% of those who who left hospital were back within six months. And obviously that isn't specific to mental health. That could also be physical health. But I can only imagine the how terrifying it must be if you have a mental health disorder that is severe enough for you to be admitted onto a psychiatric ward and then you are told that you are going to be released into the community. I mean, I can remember from when I was discharged 
and that's probably an episode I'll, I'll go into but I was absolutely terrified of being discharged I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to cope I was terrified of having to pick up the pieces of my normal life of how people would react around me of what I would do how I would approach things of being on my own and not having people to monitor me and just generally having to do things which most people would take for granted that I couldn't do before I went into hospital and having those memories of what I used to be like and thinking oh my goodness I have to go back to that so I imagine that if you're going back to a situation of constant uncertainty and chaos that you know is obviously strongly linked to being homeless that it's not surprising that you potentially don't want to do that so even if someone like Maura who potentially we don't know but potentially that hospital wasn't necessarily a kind of need that she needed to be there for any sort of mental health treatment, but more kind of because she didn't have anywhere else to go. I mean, can we blame her? I'm mean, not really. So I suppose this kind of leads on to what I feel that potentially you could learn and perhaps something that we need to talk more about is, well, what services are there for people like Maura who don't want to leave hospital because they have nowhere to go? I mean, I imagine it's a similar situation as people who intentionally go to prison because they don't want to be sleeping homeless. And I mean, how bleak is that, that people are choosing to be in a situation where their freedom is removed from them and they are exposed to other people who are acutely unwell or obviously in the case of prison criminal in order to prevent living life on the streets and you could argue oh well you know they're just trying to have an easy life well let me tell you it isn't an easy life being in hospital it really genuinely isn't it can be very very distressing at times it can be very stressful and obviously you have a lot of the things that you would have control of you don't so I don't necessarily know that it's an easy choice but it's obviously a choice that people could well be making and I wonder whether there is a service gap that's needed for patients like her. I suppose she was really fortunate to get a place in in the halfway house that she got a place in. But the, the fact of the matter is that that was a 12 bed unit. And how many other people, how many other mourers are there who didn't get that bed and were pushed back out into the streets to repeat the cycle and thus actually cost the public probably more money than they would have done had there been some other gap service I have no idea what the service is I don't have all the answers but I'm just I think it's important to ask the questions even if you don't know what the answers are because at the end of the day it's a situation where nobody benefits it costs money it ruins people's lives and fundamentally, it's continuing to happen right now. As you're listening to this, there will be people in hospital who perhaps don't need to be there. And there will be people on the streets who perhaps can't cope and are unsupported and therefore will end up back in hospital. And I think actually mental health probably would just like your physical health. I can only imagine, I, you know, this is again me just jumping the garden, no professional qualifications whatsoever regarding mental health or any sort of health so you know I'm not your doctor obviously but I do think that if your physical health deteriorates when you're on the streets to the point where you're dying at literally half the life expectancy of the average population then potentially your mental health is probably very very affected in a similar way so I can imagine that actually the people who live on the streets longer are far more likely to end up with long-term more acute mental health disorders and perhaps I don't know there's maybe research into this that I've just not done but perhaps there is a link between how long you're homeless for and and susceptibility to having a mental illness. So it's, it's definitely worth thinking about and considering. Right. Well, thanks for listening, folks, to this week's episode. Next week, I'll be taking a little turn down the road of Louisa's life. And let me tell you, it's a very complex and convoluted road. 
very confusing. I'm still genuinely, when I think of that girl, who, by the way, isn't actually called Louise, I'm still flummoxed, so I'm sure you will be too. And perhaps you'll see why I am. Anyway, if you haven't already, please do enter the coffee competition. All you have to do is share or tag the podcast on one of your social media platforms and you could be in with a chance of winning a £10 Starbucks gift card totally on me. Just picture yourself sipping on a frappuccino with a smug smile on your face, potentially listening to the next episode of the podcast. It could happen, couldn't it? Anyway, so I'll see you next week for a wonderful Louise episode. And in the meantime, you'll tag me, yeah? Okay. All right. Bye.